That, I got a new cell phone, so I'm good. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Well, a couple of those songs were a little newer to me, so one of the great benefits of having a multi-generational church is you get to learn some new stuff on a regular basis, so it's great, uh, and thanks for our team leading us this morning in worship. Hey, just a couple of short commercials before we get into our message for today. Um, the, the big thing I really want to emphasize is we, we have developed a tradition over the last few years of helping out Wheat, which is a community service center over in Clinton, on Thanksgiving, they, in particular the Monday before Thanksgiving. And what we do is we help them set up for their major food distribution because they're not able to use the same area that they've used in past years. They're having to do it just a little differently. So I got some further details this week and what they're really looking for is on Monday the 25th, they could use like eight to 10 volunteers from 10 to 12 in the morning. So a lot of you are working, some of you are in school. So some of you who can make that time available, that would be great, Monday the 25th, 10 to 12. Then in the afternoon, they could use help from, sorry, 10.30 to 12.30. In the afternoon, they could use help from 2 to 4, and then they could actually use some help at 5 o'clock with the actual handing out of the food to the clients who come through to pick up the food from 5 to 8. So there's actually three different slots where you could serve, 10.30 to 12.30, or 2 to 4, or from 5 to 8. And um, and if you're interested in that, just write down wheat on your connection card, the part that Steve got you to tear off just a few minutes ago, and you can just write 10.30 or 2 or 5 or whatever, and I'll get more information to you. It'll also give me a sense of how many people we have and how many people I need to start bugging this week to make sure we have enough people to go around. So um, anyways, it'd be great. So hopefully you'll be a part of that with us. And Monday the 25th, so that's a week from tomorrow. So they give out all the food, they hand out, I think last year it was like 500 turkey dinners to people, something like that. So people take home a 10 to 12 pound frozen turkey, yams, the whole nine yards, carrots, potato, whatever, and then, so they give them the whole, whole shebang, you know, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of stuff to unload off the trucks and set it all up. So Monday the 25th, 1030 to 1230, two to four, Five to eight. If you can serve in any of those, let me know, and we'll try to get that put together. You know, every single week when we come, I, I just I always feel this this kind of sacred burden, if you will, to make sure we do a really good job dealing with the scripture that day. But today, I, I particularly feel that weight a little hev- more heavily than normal. Because I believe that the passage of scripture that we're going to deal with today out of the book of Hebrews is so strategic for many of us to really get right in terms of our spiritual journey. If you don't have a Bible out already, I'd love for you to grab a Bible. There's one underneath your chair if you don't bring one with you. I'd really love for you to have these verses out in front of you. This is, this is Hebrews chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chair, it's page 1063. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us what we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and we, we've been discovering and being affirmed in our belief that Jesus is, is better. And what the author has been doing over since the very first verse is to say, if you are choosing any other way to do life or to relate to God than doing it through Jesus, you're settling for second best. Jesus is up here. Everything else is way down here. And in particular, he's been building a package that would 
with kind of, he's been dealing with all the things that would draw people who were born Jewish, had approached God through the covenant that had been provided through Moses, initiated in Abraham, that all those things that would kind of draw them back to that, where they would leave Jesus as a afterthought. And so he's talking about the fact that Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. In fact, he's even greater than Abraham, the father of the nation, because Abraham actually was blessed by a Christ prefigure in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Melchizedek, which we agree was, we were just going to call Mel, right? It's a lot easier for most of us. And all of that was in last week's sermon, Right? But as he gets into that topic, it strikes a nerve in the author of Hebrews. I mean, he's writing a sermon to this church that, that is distant from him, so he's got to send his sermon by letter. You know, it's a first century podcast, if you will, right? And he's sending this letter out, and it strikes a nerve, and he is just so frustrated that anybody that he knows in the church that he's writing to would settle for anything less than what God has given his best, Jesus Christ. And that frustration in many ways turns out to be anger. And I think there's some critical lessons for us to learn, but there's some things that we really need to make sure we get right in understanding what this scripture teaches to us. Would you follow along while I read? I'm going to read beginning with verse 11 of chapter 5 and through the end of chapter 6. So beginning of chapter 5, he started in on the whole Mel thing, right? He's going to come back to that in chapter 7. And so when he starts off in verse 11, so we have a great deal to say about this. And it's difficult to explain. And he's going to go on to do that in chapter 7. Since you have become too lazy to understand. You, the church people, who show up every week, you guys have become too lazy to figure this stuff out. You've just let your spiritual reasoning skills go down the drain, right? We're off to a high start, aren't we? All right, I've got to speed it up just a little bit. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. In the very basic principles of God's revelation again, you need milk. You don't need solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's an infant, just a baby. But solid food, solid foods for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So for him, maturity that he's going to be talking about has a knowledge component and it has a character component. It's not only what we know, but it's what we do, right? We're going to not deal with that a lot today in my, my message. I just want to get that out. Therefore, let us leave behind the elementary teachings about Christ. And let's go on to maturity, right? Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. In other words, these are all basic stuff that you need to know, but man, there's so much more and you need to move on to it. And we will do this if God permits. Now listen to these words from verse 4. For it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift. 
who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted the good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated, that ground receives a blessing from God, right? But if it produces worthless thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed. And at the end, will be burned. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, and that's his heart, right? In your case, we're confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God's not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So in the same way that you were diligent in serving God's people, we want you to be that, have that same kind of diligence to arrive at a place where you have full assurance of your hope until the very end. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. In other words, God gave him a promise, and Abraham endured to the end to receive that promise, right? And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. But because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath so that that through two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope before us. Now, I'm going to unpack that just a little bit before we move on. What he's really saying there is that, listen, God gave a promise to Abraham and God kept it. And Abraham sees it because he endured Said so God's also given us a promise. And the way we know that that promise is valid, that it's not going to fail, is that God's not only given it out of his unchangeable nature, but his word is also unchangeable. So when you put those two things together, they're a guarantee that the hope's going to happen. Because a lot of us, we'd say, hey, listen, I swear on my mother's grave or whatever, right? You know, we'll try to validate, I'm, I'm not lying to you. You can believe in this. You can take it to the bank. The only way God can do that is say, well, you know what? I've said it, but now let me give you a promise on top of it because my word will never fail. I can't lie and my word won't fail, so you can trust in it. Just go on and then we'll... For this hope, verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. I love that imagery. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It just doesn't barely make it into the temple, but man, it's in the Holy of Holies, right? Jesus has entered there on our behalf. In other words, he's the, he's the anchor as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, like I said, I, I think it's, I just feel this real burden for us today to make sure that we really understand this text and make sure we know what it's saying and make sure we know what it's not saying. Because some of us, we can look at this text 
and we can use it to reinforce the heresy that we live our lives by. Let me say that again. Some of us can read this text, and we'll use it to reinforce a heresy that we live our lives by. And here's the heresy. Jesus gives me a second chance, but then after that, I have to earn it. Right? Jesus died on the cross, but if I really want to go to heaven, right, I've got to make sure I was baptized the right way, I go to the church the right way, I do all this good stuff. So somewhere down the line, I, I've got, and God may give me a, a second chance, he may give me a third chance, he may give me a 23rd chance, he may give me a 53rd chance, he may give me a 73rd chance, but when it comes to the 83rd chance, God pulls up the balance sheet and say, all right, what credits do we have, what debits do we have? You know what, forget it, they're never going to make it. And, and, you know, in the imagery from the airport, you know, the, you get the, over the Neil Davidson report to the ticket counter, say, you know, and you get there and say, you know, we've had to change your destination. Here's your new ticket. You're standing at the gate, you're looking up, and it says, next flight, heaven. Say, your, your gate's down the concourse. And you get down there, and you chat, it's like, next flight, hell. Man, I blew it. I got to tell you, a lot of us are living our lives that way. We think that God gave us a second chance in Jesus, and then after that, we got to earn it in order to stay his child. And if we're not good enough, we're going to get home someday, and our, our, our key's not going to fit in the door anymore, and we're not going to be welcome to get in. And we look at a passage like this, and we say, yeah, you know, these guys, they tasted the good stuff, right? They saw the Holy Spirit working. I mean, they went to youth retreat. You know, they went men's breakfast. They did all this stuff. and what, they, they just fell. They just fell. And there's no way to renew them to repentance. See? It is true that you can lose your salvation. That's not true. That's not what this passage is saying. The scripture cannot contradict itself. That's inherent in the nature of God's word. And God has clearly said to us, for it is by grace that we are saved by faith. And it's not of what we do in any way, shape, or form. It is the gift of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We, you and I do not need to read this passage of scripture and say, man, I knew I was right. I blew it back there in my 30s and I'm never going to heaven now. That's not what this text says. The other thing I'm really concerned about is that some, not only will it reinforce for some a heretical belief my other concern is that it will actually undermine some of the biblical convictions that some of us have. You know, and what I mean by that is that we'll look at the passage like this, and some of you maybe grew up in a thing. I grew up in a church that loved to talk about once saved, always saved. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? You know, if you've been around some churches, you'll hear the phrase. If you're if more theological type, right, and you've done some reading that, and I'm not saying they have to be, but, you know, you, the, 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 the greater th idea is like, they call it the perseverance of the saints, right? That's, that's the idea, the, the perseverance of the saints. And for those of you who are Calvinists and do the tulip thing, the P at the end stands for Perseverance of the saints, right? T-U-L-I-P. The P is for the perseverance of the saints. And we look at a passage like this and we say, well, maybe that's not right. 
Maybe that's not right. You know, we look, we look at this and, and we're reading through it and we see that, you know, man, it's impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit. You know, these guys, and then it gets very specific. Those who have fallen away. Man, I guess you can fall from grace. I guess it's maybe once saved and hopefully always saved. Adding the word hopefully, right? I got to tell you, that's not what this path. I believe, I stand before you this morning as your pastor, and I tell you with all the deepest convictions from Scripture that if you have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that you and I or anybody else, including the evil one, can do to ever change that. Listen, let me just, a couple of Scriptures, and, and, and he's, Daniel's going to pull these up for us. Just look at these. These are, these are words directly out of the, the, the word, mouth of Jesus, right? John chapter 6. I'm only going to look at a couple, right? Everyone the Father gives me, I guess my underlines disappeared. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never, right? Never. If you've got your own Bible, not a church Bible, you can look at this passage. You can circle never. Never cast out. When, when, how many? When, when is that going to happen? Never, right? You tell I can get a little agitated. All right, calm down, you know. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose just a few. Eh, maybe a fair number. Less than half, right? No, none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. That's Jesus speaking. If you have been placed into the hand of Jesus, you're, you're not going anywhere. Next verse. From John chapter 10. This is going to be the last one. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. For some of them that might not last past this land. But, uh, this life. But uh, no. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. They're never going to get that. Would Neil Davidson report to the ticket counter please? Sorry. We've had to change your destination. Never going to happen. Never going to perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. If you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, there's no place that we're going. And this passage of Scripture is not designed by God to undermine our conviction that salvation is by God 100%, start to finish, and all we have to do is participate in it by faith. So what is this passage really saying to us? And here's how I want you to understand it, because this is the way I, I think it's intended to be understand, understood. Here's a guy who has a passionate love for his congregation, and he's issuing to them a pastoral warning. He's looking out on a Sunday morning, a lot like I am, and can say, you know what? Some of you are all in, no reservations, fully in, followers of Jesus Christ. Some of you guys are playing games with this stuff. Some of you are superficial, right? You, you've been a part of the experience with everybody else. You've sat in church on a regular basis and you've heard the word of God spoken and taught. And you say, yeah, I get that. I understand it. You've seen people's lives changed by the gospel and they're just not the same people anymore. You've seen how 
People serve one another and sacrifice in, in the love of God. You, you've seen all of that. And yet, you get up on a Sunday morning, you walk out the door, and you say, eh, you know, I'm good for another week. Going back to the life I've always lived. My spouse won't bother me this week. My parents will be off my back. Or I've checked off my box, right, of my to-do list so that I have enough credits so that I get somewhere with the gospel. I got to tell you, and so he's issuing this warning to them saying, don't play games with the gospel. Because I got to tell you, if you're sitting in church on every week, and I'm just using our kind of language from this, this generation, right? If you're sitting in church every week and you're hearing the gospel taught, and somehow or another you're well, well, waiting for the bells and whistles, you're waiting for Jesus to be re-crucified, to prove stuff to you, I got to tell you, there is nothing more. And if this stuff's not going to convince you, nothing's going to convince you. And I'm not sure there's any way to renew you to repentance that leads to faith. So don't play games with it. And I think that's the spirit of what he's trying to say today. From this pastor of scripture, he's going through, he's teaching this stuff about Melchizedek. He said, man, I cannot believe that I have to go over this stuff with you guys again. The fact that you don't choose the slop that's outside in the trash can rather than the Thanksgiving meal that's sitting on the table and yet we're going to have to do it all over again. And at some point in time, guys, it's not going to work. You're never going to change. Because there is no more. Because Jesus is the full revelation of God. And there is no more testimony coming. So it really asks the question then, what can we tell from this passage of Scripture then about true faith? I mean... If you say, well, all right, do I have the all-in, dedicated, truly saving faith, or do I have the superficial faith that he's kind of chewing out here? Where, where, where do I fit on this scheme, right? And I think there's a couple of things that we can take away from this text, not exhaustive, but a couple of things that I think are really important for you and I to get today from this text. What can you and I tell about the true faith, the kind of faith that he's advocating for us to have in the book of Hebrews? And here's the first thing that I tell you. It says true faith matures. True faith matures. What does he say in verse 1 of chapter 6? He said, let's leave behind the elementary things, the, teachings about, the elementary teachings about Christ, and let's go on to Maturity. As he's writing to them, you know what? I, I should be able to hand you guys a steak meal and you ought to be able to feed yourselves. But instead, I'm having, to, I'm having to, to, to get out a bottle and heat it up and stick it in your mouths because you guys are spiritual infants and you can't handle this stuff. You, you've never developed and let your spiritual teeth drop in, right? And, and, and some of us don't do that because it's painful, just like teething is, right? You know? and he said, true faith matures. Doesn't stay static, doesn't go backwards. True faith matures. Now, there's a lot of things I could say about that, and in the sense of like, how do we do that? And 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 those kinds of things. I, I what I really want to point out to you is some of the things he suggests here about the the what's the way to put it? How, how 
what's his understanding of what maturity is, right? I mean, we know that the scripture talks about maturing over and over again, right? In Ephesians, it says, you need to grow in every aspect related to your salvation. You can go to First and Second Peter, and you're going to see the emphasis of growing over and over again. It's just consistent in the scripture. So there's, it's there for us, and we could ask about how with Bible study and prayer and service and all kind of stuff, but he specifically talks here about the fact that you ought to be in a position where you don't have to be taught you should be able to teach. So let me, let me tell you, one of the things that you and I need to think about when we think about whether or not our faith is really growing is are we moving from a place where we need to get to getting to a place where we can give to others? Are you in a position where all you can do is be fed or are you actually getting to a position where you can feed others? Right? You know, are you in a position where you just stay in where it's about, you know, do you need to be served or are you moving towards a position where you can actually serve others? Bigger perspective. Is the gospel about yourself or are you maturing to a place where you can make the gospel about the kingdom, where you can give it away to other people? That's spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about. It's not in a position where it's like, and it helps me, uh, I got, you know, I can, I can get through Monday and I can get through two. Oh, this is so great. It's going to do all those things. But somewhere along the line, God says, you know what? I want you to be the light of the world. And I want people to see it. Are you growing into that? As I was sent, it's the way I want you to go. I want you to be a witness. I want you to be able to teach this stuff to other people, not in a position to say, you know what, I, I, you know, I've been going to church all my life. I don't get it. Let me just introduce you to my pastor. He'll explain it to you. God wants you to get past that place, right? And so he's saying, you know, real faith gets to a place to say, I don't want to be where I'm just always getting from God because I need it. I want to get to a place where I can give it away to other people. Does that make sense? And that's what he's talking about in this text, Right? Second thing I really want you to see, and I'll try to chill out just a little bit after this. He not only says that true faith matures, he also says that true faith endures. It endures, right? And, and he says, you know what? I, all that diligence that you had in serving other people because you're all... I want you to have that same type of diligence to hang on to the end. I want you to grab onto the truth and not let go. I want it to be enduring. And then he brings up the example of Abraham, right? He said Abraham was given a promise. God didn't give him the fulfillment of that promise in the birth of Isaac for over 25 years. But Abraham held on to the promise. I want you to endure. I want you to endure. True faith is a faith that endures. If, if God's pouring all this water into the field of your life, chapter 6, verse 7, and all you're producing is thorn and thistles, right? It's, it's an instinct. You've got to endure. So it really generates a question then about, and so again, I'm going to use a churchy word. Some of you may not be familiar with this, but the idea of, you know, what about the people who are backslidden? Anybody ever you hear that word? The backsliders, right? The Bible's full of backsliders. Right? Abraham backslid. God sent him out on a journey and he got up to the edge of a nation. And he said, Hey, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. Right? Just, just a little lie. Just a little lie. Right? Or, you know what? 
we're not getting this child the way we expected. Maybe I should just listen to you and sleep with your maid and have a child that way. Abraham backslid. He did. Abraham's in heaven. Right? Moses. Right? Not only did he jump too fast in the sense of killing an Egyptian, trying to deliver the people his own way, and had to spend 40 years in the desert to learn the lesson. But then when he came back and he saw all the great things he did, he still treated God with dishonor. And he's in heaven, but he didn't get to go into the promised land because he backslid. How about David? Man after God's own heart. Right? A lot of us want to be like David. David committed adultery and had somebody else assassinated to cover it up. I'd say that's probably backsliding. We agree? Right? You know, and so what does it mean for our faith to endure kind of thing? And, and it's, it's one of these deals. That, and I got to tell you, this comes up in my ministry more often than you would think, right? So, several different things. Some of it is we're, we're in a position where we want to have comfort related to people who are important to us whether it's our children, our spouse, our grandkids, close friends, or whatever. And, and, you know, and I've had conversations with people around funerals, right, where they say, you know, what, well, when, you know their, their, their 71-year-old cousin just passed away. said, but when they were 16, you know, they, 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 they professed faith in Christ and were baptized, but they really didn't do anything with it for 50-something years. But they're still going to heaven, right, because once saved, always saved. comes up, right? Or I had an experience in ministry where a grandmother, and I'll use this phrase, it wasn't quite this bad, but dragged their grandchild, 20-year-old grandchild, right around that age, into my office after a service and said, my grandchild's ready to pray to receive Christ. And the grandmother proceeded to do all the talking. I asked a few questions of the grandchild who pretty much responded in grunts, like, yeah, oh, okay, yeah. And I said, well, you know, do you want to receive, pray to receive Christ? And said, yeah. So I led them in a, the sinner's prayer. And, 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 and then the, the meeting kind of wrapped up. The, out, the do, out the door they went. I never saw them again. But I remember standing in the hallway with a grandmother who said, they've said the prayer. They're going to go to heaven no matter what they do with the rest of their lives. I mean, J.D. Greer tells a story. Um, he's a pastor of a church down in North Carolina, and he was in, in working through the book of Hebrews. He came to the same text, and he tells the story. He, he was playing some basketball at a city court, and he was playing a game with, a, with just a, a, a young adult. And this guy, you know, he's covered in tattoos, and he's got metal everywhere, and et cetera. And, and, and so they get into the game a little bit, and, and he starts to try to witness to this guy. And so halfway through the game, the guy just grabs the ball and kind of puts it on his hip and says, hey, dude, you trying to witness to me, you know? And, and, and he says, well, yeah, you know? And, and he said, well, you know, I've done all that stuff. He said, I went to church when I was a teenager, and I, was, I went on youth retreats, and I, and I got baptized, and I went on mission trips, and et cetera. But then when I got old enough where I could drive, and I had a job and some money, and I discovered partying and sex, he said, you know what, I figured... I'm going to heaven no matter what I do, so I'm just going to enjoy the stuff I'm doing. So you can just save it. Because I'm living the best, best of both worlds, right? I'm going to heaven, but I'm living the way I want to. That's not what he's talking about in this text. He says, 
outside of the whole confines of the fact that we may go through periods of backsliding, he said, the faith that endures is the one somewhere along the way is, is going to produce a harvest in the field that somebody's going to actually want spiritually. And the ultimate challenge for all of us is that we can't answer that question about whether we have the full assurance of hope, as he talks about, for anybody else but for ourselves. Right? We can pray for other people. The only person that you can guarantee that has a full assurance that you have a faith that's truly going to save, the only way you can decide that is for yourself. I'm going to use a little illustration, and with this we're going to conclude. I want you to think about this chair as faith, faith in Jesus. Now, I know for certain, for myself, that when I was 11 years old, at the end of a service at a church in Sudbury, Massachusetts, an invitation was given to believe in Jesus. And I said, I'm going to do that. And I sat down in faith. I can point back to a specific moment where I prayed to receive Jesus. And I, I think my faith has endured. I'm just being a little bit facetious. I hope so, right? And, and now some of you, it's been a little different journey, right? You know, we've had a few people here. We get around to baptisms, and it's like, well, tell us about when you came to know Christ. And it's like, well, you know, I, I, I got invited to go to, to come to youth group on a, on a Monday night and gave a, you know, and I came a few times. It was fun. The food wasn't too bad and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, then I decided to go to YEC and, you know, and et cetera. And then somewhere along the line, I, I just kind of figured out that I already believed already. And it's more of a season, right? But the most important thing for any of us is not so much knowing the point that we did it, it's to know that we're actually sitting on the chair. So the most important question you can ask yourself today is, do you know for sure that you're sitting fully on the chair of faith? You know, the book of it's Paul's second letter to the church, of, uh, the, Corinth, uh, the church of Corinth, he said to them, you know what, guys? You need to test to make sure that you're really in the faith. It's chapter 13, verse 5. And I'm inviting you this morning to test whether or not you know for sure you're sitting on the chair of faith. Because it doesn't really matter what you did 10 years ago or 20 years ago, because that could be, just make sure today you know for sure that you're stand, sitting on the chair of faith, right? Because that, that, this is the best indicator, the best insurance that you have a faith that's maturing and that's enduring. And that's the kind of faith that really saves If you're making that decision today for the very first time, I'm not going to ask you to make a public display, but every week on our handout, we provide a place for you to check off. Today, I commit my life to Christ. And if, and if you're sitting down on the chair of faith in Christ for the very first time, I'd love for you to check that off and just hand it to me when you, when you leave and head out into the lobby. And we will follow up with you to make sure that you have a chance you have the resources and you have the relationships and the encouragement to make sure that you really flourish in your faith in Christ. So this one that can really survive. For those of you who are sure that you're sitting on the chair, here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Do you really want to be sitting on the chair? Or when your friends come by, I hate this turning chair, there we go. 
When your friends come by and say, hey, you know what? There's a chair over there, and we've got a really good view. Are you tempted to get off the chair and go, go check out something different? Or do you really want to be on the chair? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to teach your word today. Father, I pray that it wouldn't promote heresy and it would not undermine our assurance. But by using the pictures that you've given us about a maturing and enduring faith, every single one of us would walk out of this room today with a full assurance of hope. The hope that's built on the anchor and connected to the anchor that's in the inner sanctum. Jesus Christ himself. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.